Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, how concerned should we be with the new Pfizer COVID-19 vaccination? Apparently, some allergic reactions can occur, but nothing to worry about. How do we make sure we're not in this position again? We'll be discussing new forecasting and modeling technology, which could help us in future pandemics. And SpaceX has sent another rocket up. It came back down and then blew up. But that was a success. We have the details. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Great news. It's the end of the beginning. The Pfizer COVID-19 vaccination has been approved. All you old folks rejoice. Down with your pants. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. You know, I've told her, you don't you don't have to drop your pants, son. Pull your pants back up. Goes in the arm. I mean you can I remember getting the flu shot actually at the radio station many years ago, and there were people that wanted it in the rear end. It hurts their arm, uh, but then you can't sit down. I don't know. I don't get it. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. You can find the commentary waiting for you on Facebook and Twitter. Also on the website, you can send me a note there, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, as the show progresses, lots to talk about. We're going to touch on, obviously, the vaccine and the latest there and where we are. I want to play a clip of uh, that was on uh, Charles Adler's show. This is Dr. Uh, Supriya Sharma, Chief Medical Officer, sorry, Chief Medical Advisor for Health Canada, uh, talking about the new vaccination and, and how this is all going to roll out and what we can uh, look forward to. People were saying if we can get a third of the population uh, vaccinated, we can effectively drive down transmission of COVID and greatly reduce it. I think that's a fair statement. Um, in general, when we're talking about effect infectious diseases, in order to completely stop transmission, we would need what's called herd immunity. And a herd immunity in general, and it differs with each virus and each circumstance, but usually herd immunity is when you get to about 60 to 70 percent of the population vaccinated. So that's really just to kind of stop that transmission from person to person pretty much completely. Um, but, but honestly, when you get to about 35% of the population vaccinated, that goes a long way in terms of slowing it down to, to a place where, you know, it's a bit more manageable. That is Canada's Chief Medical Advisor, Dr. Sharma, talking to Charles Adler in regard to what we can expect moving forward. Uh, lots of questions uh, as this does continue to move forward. Very exciting news yesterday. Uh, of course, uh, coming out that uh, Health Canada had approved the COVID-19 vaccination from Pfizer. What is next? Who's going to get it? And also a couple of situations in regard to uh, allergies. Let's bring in Dr. Jason Ohian, a p- pediatrician with Hamilton Allergy and a fellow in the allergy and clinical immunology and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. So how are you? 
I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, let's address first the allergic reaction. We heard about this uh, yesterday. The UK, of course, uh, in the process of starting to roll this vaccine out and, and mass uh, inoculation and such. And we've heard a, a couple of situations uh, in regard to uh, an allergic reaction. What can you tell us about that? Obviously, this is a very minute amount in the, considering the total number vaccinated so far. Right. So, um, so first of all, thanks for having me on. So, as I understand what happened in the UK. As they were uh, starting their vaccination program, they were vaccinating, of course, the seniors and uh, first line, first responders or first line healthcare professionals. And this occurred in two younger patients or first uh, or healthcare professionals. Now, the extent of the reaction, they did seem to have a systemic allergic reaction, and they were recovered, uh, like you would see in any situation, like a child, for example, who has a peanut allergy. A person who takes penicillin, they have an allergic reaction, they get. Uh, treated promptly to get recovered. So they, thankfully, these two patients recovered promptly. And in general, in, in any vaccine uh, administering uh, a scenario, patients should always be monitored for an allergic reaction. So it's not that uncommon that we can see this in general vaccinations in general. However, if you look at the studies that were, um, uh, that were taken on uh, with uh, the Pfizer study, they, I believe their inclusion criteria was to not include any patients who've had a previous history of allergic reactions to any vaccine. So this is why the, my first my first thought was when I heard the news is that of the 40, you know 40,000 patients or so, how come no one ever had an allergic reaction? And, and when I dig deeper, I realized that they excluded for patients who had a history of an allergic reaction. For that reason, you see in the UK now they've actually come out and said if anybody's had a previous allergic reaction. They should not get the vaccine for now until they can help identify where the source of the, of the culprit is. Now, people always ask the question, what is the source of the allergen in this case? Since no one's ever had an, uh, an um, RNA vaccine before, this is the first RNA vaccine ever coming to, to market. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the actual vaccine biology, they actually have the RNA enveloped or surrounded by a whole bunch of lipids or fats so they can actually get into the cell and then take over the cell and produce the protein that will mimic the, 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 the outer uh, region of the coronavirus uh, that adheres to our human cells. So the thinking so far is, is that the lipid layer, the outer fat layer, seems to be the trigger for this allergic response. That's one kind of working thought, although to be honest with you, many of the world's allergy societies are just trying to put their heads together because this is such a brand new area of biology, uh, of immunobiology leading to allergy reactions. Other areas that we should think about as well is uh, theoretically it's, it's possible if a patient had a latex allergy and they, they received the vaccine through the stopper, often there's latex, so the stopper mm. in the vaccine vial itself. And lastly, there are situations in patients themselves who have just a generally high allergy burden. They can have a lot of allergic reactions in general or be on medications that can facilitate allergic reactions. That could have occurred as well. So without knowing the details of those two people's personal health we don't know that just yet so uh, i then the next question that comes up obviously is is this going to worry people to not go ahead and get a uh, vaccine in fact i've been having those questions since yesterday from patients of mine in allergy and i'm uh, reaching out to the um to the people you know in the hamilton region i think what we're going to likely need to do is set up a clinic for people who have had either previous allergic reactions to vaccines in general or adverse reactions, that they be sent to a clinic that they can administer the vaccine in what we call a, a desensitization format. So you just increase, you give the doses and, and broken down. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I was talking to one of your colleagues yesterday who actually had a good question and said, well, it's, it's hard enough to get this vaccine transported. It has to be in a very cold freezer. And you only have a certain amount of time that you can mix it. And when I dug deeper, um, actually the, the Canadian um, website has a very good outline of, the, uh, of what we call the product monograph, which is the explanation of the vaccine. Very clearly written. Uh, and it's actually it's nice to see that Health Canada, and I trust Health Canada very well in terms of their ability to, to vet out the safety of any of any um, new medication that's being given or offered to, to the public, they've actually outlined very nicely on the product monograph on the Health Canada site uh, for this new vaccine um, so that we can actually take the vaccine out of the freezer and it could be um, kept in a regular um, cold temperature for about up to five days up to, uh, and then um, at room temperature for a couple of hours. That's plenty of time for an allergy clinic to be able to mix up and make dilutions to administer the vaccine in small doses carefully in, in the higher risk population. So I'm sure with like, like many of my other colleagues in allergy, a lot of us are trying to prevent uh, you know, mass hysteria and worry of an allergic reaction to a vaccine that is a game changer. It'll be one of many vaccines that are coming to the market that can really change the, um, the way we're going to go forward and, and protecting our community at large. Um, and it's, I, you know, it's despite yesterday's uh, account of those two anaphylactic reactions, it's still a very exciting time, and uh, it should give us lots of reason to be, um, you know, just cautiously very optimistic for change. Doctor, would there be any reason to believe that you could be re, uh, have an allergic reaction to one of the types of drugs but not the other? Or are they all so similar that, you know, chances are if, if it happens with one, you'll get a reaction with the other? Yeah, great question. No, absolutely. You can be... Um, totally tolerant of a different type because they're all they're going to be formulated differently. The two ones that are out right now, the Moderna and the, um, and the Pfizer, are similar RNA vac- vaccines, but the ones that are right behind them, the Johnson's and Johnson's, the other, um, the other companies, they're, they're actually, the biology is very different. I mean, the, the end game is trying to ensure that, the, that our, our body can recognize the coronavirus outer structure and prevent it prevent its adherence, and there are many pathways to doing that. It just so happens that the two companies that worked on the, a new sequence of, of RNA vaccines got there first, which is very exciting, but there are, there are, there are about 10 or so that are being um, worked on right now, and I believe it's just a matter of time for the other ones to get there as well. Um, so I think it's, it's very exciting times, very exciting times. So how will this change? And again, I mean, we're talking about the first week of rollout here for, uh, for the UK. How will this change the guidelines uh, for those who get it? Uh, for those who get it, or or maybe it'll be simpler to say who should not get this? Yeah. So I think what's going to happen is that as you know, they go through the, the different phases of vaccinations. Now, to be honest with you, um, the, in the elderly population, we rarely see. Uh, such severe allergic reactions to vaccinations. And it seems to not be what happens. Um, we do see it a whole lot more in the younger population. So much like what they saw in the UK, that I'd be more concerned about the healthcare professionals who were there on the, on the first line to receive it, to ask them questions. Have you had adverse reactions to vaccines in general, or are you on a number of medications to control allergic diseases and prevent them? And if they are, then I think in that case, a clinic should be designated where they would receive it um, with the appropriate monitoring. And I think even in that population, the numbers who will react to the vaccine allergically will be low. Um, I, now, there, there's going to be a lot of logistics, as, as you've heard, uh, with the Pfizer vaccine just rolling out to long-term care facilities, how you can actually get it out there. 
as opposed to bringing seniors to a clinic. That's uh, that's yet to be determined, I'm sure, in many way in many of our uh, regions. But I still think that the likelihood of a senior having a severe allergic reaction to this vaccine is much less than the younger population. So, but nonetheless, if for a senior's medical chart identifies they've had multiple adverse reactions, and that happens, we see these patients, then, of course, we'd have to label them as high risk and arrange for them to be administered the vaccine in a clinic where they can be monitored for it and ultimately desensitized to it. So, uh, again, what would you say to someone who has an allergy? And I guess we don't even know really, you, you talked about latex early, but we don't even really know what type of allergy, um, is there certain types of allergies that will be set off, uh, are more likely to be set off than others, perhaps? I guess we don't even know that at this point, do we? So, yeah, so without knowing, because without knowing what the exact precipitance of the allergen was, and the details, again, are, 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 very, are not available to us. Uh, all we can do is highlight who is at higher risk. And if they are at higher risk, in hopes of preventing people to say, I'm not going to go get it. I'll just wait for the next one or whatever. I mean, they, have, they certainly have the right to wait for the next one. But as you mentioned, this can happen either again or not happen at all. All that we do and recommend is that public health in our region should set up a, a designated clinic to help um, the intake of patients who've had personal allergic disease from or allergic reactions to vaccines in the past that they would be administered or offered to be administered the vaccine. And we can also, quote-unquote, test for an allergy. So if we had a sample of the vaccine, we can actually do a test, right. uh, a scratch test, or even a, a, a small dose as a, a way of challenging a patient to see before we give them the full dose. So that would be baby steps that we can do as well to help determine is there a risk or no risk. But ultimately, it will be monitoring the patient for a, a longer period of time to make sure they're fine. But again, I'm, I'm, um, I'm optimistic that we're going to be able to do this uh, one way or the other. I think it's um, once we identify these patients who are higher risk, we'll create a separate clinic for them. It'll take a bit of work to do it and, and planning, but um, again, not to, to, to avoid patients from saying, I don't want the vaccine just because I'm worried that may happen to me, even though we don't, like you said, we don't know what the actual culprit is. And for that reason, we need to investigate this further and then offer these patients an option for treatment. So what would your immediate message be to those that have a, an allergy of some sort and are in a position to get, whether they're a frontline worker or what have you, in a position to get this vaccine? Would you recommend yay or nay? I would recommend yay with caution and that these patients yeah. need, to, need to feel reassured that we're going to, I mean, the allergy world right now has just got pulled into this as well, saying we have to work and figure out what's going on and help these patients and also offer a way for, I mean, our colleagues in public health, have enough hard work to do, and, and first responders, of course, there are ton, tons of work. We have to help out as best as we can to create a clinic and to advise them. And I think we'll be once we develop a protocol and identify um, high risk versus low risk guidelines, and we'll, I'm sure we'll be able to do that in, the, in a matter of a couple of weeks once we get more patients immunized. Um, we should be able to instill confidence in our community so they can continue on and get the vaccine. Dr. Jason O'Hale has been with us, pediatrician with Hamilton Allergy and a fellow in allergy and clinical immunology. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. All the best. Stay safe. 1227 News is on the way. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Available. Uh, a Markham-based forecasting and modeling technology company has announced a partnership with the University of Toronto's Institute for Pandemics to advise on and support deployment uh, deployment of world-leading pandemic response tools, technology, research, and training. The collaboration with Dr. David Fisman and the entire IFP team will initially focus on supporting pandemic forecasts at the federal and provincial levels. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. David Fisman, epidemiologist with the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for uh, for being interested in this. Before we get to your project here you're working on, just your thoughts on where we are in the announcement yesterday of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccination being approved by Health Canada. Yeah, we're, so, so we're, we're, we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, vaccination, I was talking to a colleague today about the fact that, you know, we, we, we both think by, by this time next year, we're going to have a lot of vaccine around. We're just starting to see the initial trickle. But that's going to swell to uh, to more or less a tsunami in the um, in the months ahead, and that's great uh, because we need to get back to sort of normal life and get everyone vaccinated. The difficulty with that, of course, is that we're into the second wave of a bad pandemic now, and vaccination isn't going to fix the infections that have already occurred, which are are filling up our ICUs. And even if the uh, this pandemic wave starts to wane, we can anticipate a lot more people getting sick between now and springtime. We we, we already in the GTA, Hamilton, um, uh, now into Waterloo and Guelph a bit, we already have care systems that are under strain um, and a lot of beds filling up. We're, we're going up by about, uh, I think they'll talk more about this at the press conference later today, but we're probably going up by somewhere around 20 beds occupied every three to four days. And, um, you, you know, we do have a fair number of ICU beds still in the, in the province. The difficulty is you actually need trained personnel to staff them. And I think the ICU nurses and docs are getting pretty exhausted and are very stretched. So um, so we do, do definitely have a, a bumpy road ahead of us. But, you know, hopefully, uh, sorry, this is a dad joke, but hopefully the vaccine's a bit of a shot in the arm in terms of giving people, you know, uh, the strength to sort of keep moving forward and hang on because this is going to end and it's probably going to end sooner than we might have hoped a few few months back. As you mentioned, vaccination won't help those that are already infected and already suffering from this. That being said, you know, we're hearing reports that uh, the UK, for example, could have their uh, anybody who wants a vaccination vaccinated uh, by spring, by the end of April. Let's assume that is the case if everyone who wants to be is vaccinated, how long after that before we really see the impact of this vaccination? Well, I, my, my belief is that based on what I understand about communicable diseases and what I understand about where this pandemic's going anyway, which is in the Northern Hemisphere, we're already, we already see Northern Hemisphere. Canada's a small country, right? Uh, there are billions of people who live in the Northern Hemisphere. What we see in the Northern Hemisphere is that the second wave actually looks like it's at peak now, which probably means over the next couple of weeks, it's going to start to decline. So with vaccine, without vaccine, as, as, as um, the records show from 1918 with that bad flu pandemic, 
Um, this is around the time when that second wave tends to peak. So what we would likely see with or without vaccine is in February, March, this thing starting to subside, whatever we do. What's going to happen with vaccine is um, my, my hope is that if vaccine prevents infection and prevents it in a durable way, what you're going to see is that's going to um, eliminate, eliminate the possibility of future waves. So in 1918, they had four waves total. Right. The, the second wave killed the most people, but right. there was a third wave and a fourth wave. And I think getting the population vaccinated is going to, you know, it's one of these paradox of prevention things. We're not going to see the thing that would have happened without vaccinating. People say, oh, we vaccinated all these people and nothing happened. Well, that's because that's we why. vaccinated all these people, right? So <laughs> exactly. It's a challenge of public health. Yeah. So tell us about this uh, this new uh, partnership that you're working on and, and what we can learn from this pandemic. So, so, so we are still starting to, you know, get to know each other with Scarson and um, Institute for Pandemics, and this is all very new. So it, it's a bit of a story. If you have time, it's kind of a fun story. Yep. Um, so, so Institute of Pandemics, um, Institute for Pandemics, I can't even say it right, at University of Toronto, we got a very generous gift from something called the Bora Miller Foundation a couple of months back where um, these, these donors sort of said, you know, this is, <laughs> this is a crazy problem. And we actually need some sort of academic hub to study pandemics as a thing. And uh, they, they, they endowed this center at University of Toronto. My boss, Stanley Brown, who's going to be talking at the press conference this afternoon, is the director of this center. And we have a few different streams. I'm, I'm involved with the, with the pandemic preparedness uh, stream, the three different streams. Um, so, so we have the center and we're, we're sort of in the process of trying to put together a data hub so people will be able to come to our website and, you know, get good data about COVID, you know, in the GTA, Ontario and Canada and globally, because we have a lot of resources in different places. About three weeks ago, there's actually a, an interesting media connection here. My colleague Ashley Chute was reached out to by CBC. And CBC said, you know, we're doing a story on this company in Markham, which we had never heard of, called Scarson. Can you look at their model and tell us if it's, you know, if it's any good? So I actually looked at this model and it's like, holy smokes, these guys have been working for like six or seven months and they've created this phenomenal, basically simulation of COVID in Canada, which is cool because what it is, is it's is, is bottom up. So there's 93, I believe, health regions in Canada, and they're simulating all 93 of them. And then what they do as a Canada forecast or a provincial forecast is they're sort of aggregating up. So you can sort of zoom in and zoom out on this thing. And it's pretty good. Like, it's the way we would have made a model. There's some things that we did a bit differently. There's some things they did a bit differently. Um, what, what's exciting for us is, is they, they were very welcoming. They've been... Um, sort of shopping this thing around, you know, they're for profit company that they're, they're not a they're not a charity. But they, they had been showing this to people in Ontario and across Canada and really not getting a lot of traction, sort of getting a lot to be frank, a lot of doors closed in their faces, which for us was like, holy smokes, like we've been working on modeling this thing from the get go. And this is this is this is like the tool that people need when they call Ashley and I and say, oh, we just have one thing we wanted to ask you. What happens if we close schools a week earlier mm. or we keep them closed a week longer? We don't have the bandwidth that, as two people to respond to every little request that comes from people in public health departments. 
these guys have this platform where you can actually, A, you can teach people who have no background in modeling to use it because it's Microsoft Excel based. And B, it's really good. And you can make these sort of small changes and use that to, you know, justify the policy decisions you're making at the health unit level. And you can also compare easily across Canada. So we can, for example, put together graphics for decision makers that show them, well, this is what Peel region looks like, not relative to other places in the GTA, but relative to Fraser Valley and relative to Edmonton and relative to, I think, Lenaudière and Quebec is another Canadian hotspot. So we can very easily sort of reshuffle the deck and look at, at where we prioritize things in Canada. And back to vaccines, they've done a lot of work building in a vaccine module. So as I say, we're just <laughs> getting up to speed. And I think there's going to be a lot of back and forth in terms of our ideas and their ideas. But it's kind of an exciting partnership. And um, as I say, it's sort of cool that they are right here in the neighborhood. We had never known each other. But for the CBC story on that company, I don't think we ever would have known about each other. There's a little bit of a an interesting cultural divide that we have to have to bridge where I think the fact that they are a for-profit company, you know, when we've been talking to the modeling table and so forth, the modeling tables for academic modelers at universities. So we're getting a little bit of side eye there and we're having to say, you know, it's actually good science and, you know, we can work together with all kinds of different sectors. And, it, you know, we have this ability here in Ontario and it's going to be a good thing for everyone by the time we're done. Uh, so that, that's sort of the, the, the long version of the story. But, but yeah, they've, they've been great. And uh, 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 we're looking forward to get rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty with this thing. The, the one thing we've seen to learn from this pandemic is it's taught us to break down these silos. That's how oh, yeah. we've obviously seen a vaccine come as quickly as it has and, and all of these agencies working together. Uh, that being said, some criticism in how we got here and the fact that we don't make this anymore and there was a lot of politics being played about private companies doing this, yet here you're saying obviously these sorts of partnerships are quite valuable. It's not something the government should be doing on its own. It should be also uh, seeing what's out there in, in the private hands. Is, is that accurate? I, I you know, I, I don't think, to be honest, my belief on this is I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a snob. I like competence. And once you're competent and once you're decent, um, I kind of don't care what label you wear or what hmm. sign hangs around your neck, right? And um, so, yeah, I have some issues with some of the stuff the provincial government has done in terms of some of the outreach to um, some of the big accounting companies, for example, big consulting companies, rather, to outsource modeling there. There's no reason to do that. We have lots of expertise in Ontario. And, you know, I don't I don't think that that exercise served them well. Meanwhile, we've got this sort of homegrown tech that's right here in our backyard and, you, you know, you get the story that people, you know, just couldn't break through, couldn't get through the various firewalls and so forth and, uh, you know, had lots of doors closed in their faces. So, you know, part of that is just, you know, that's how the world is. But part of it is also, I think what's so valuable is, is when, we, when we make connections like this, we really can leverage some good stuff that's out there. I think we can bring stuff to the table that a private company doesn't have, and they can bring stuff to the table, particularly in terms of resources and just the just the person power. They've got, you know, they're they're a big company, and they are absolute masters at using data from multiple sources, which we wouldn't have access to. We we wouldn't be able to crunch these numbers. We're not we're not computer scientists. We're not data scientists, and they have those on staff. 
So it really should be a, a really productive and mutually beneficial uh, partnership. And yeah, I mean, it's a bit funny the way we sort of stumbled into it, but I'm glad it happened. What are you expecting from uh, modeling coming out late or projections coming out later today? Um, you know, I I actually um, I, <laughs> that's awkward because I actually had had seen the slides and and uh, and agreed not to speak about that. So I, okay. I think I just have to zip it. Yeah, I understand. And and, and, and no, 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 not at all. And I I have to ask, obviously, but I, I totally respect that and do appreciate all the information that you have given us. Uh, Doctor David Fisman has been with us, epidemiologist with the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, David, thank you so much for the time. Good luck with this project. Thank you so much. Maybe maybe in a few weeks' time we could touch base again and see if if this uh, got off the ground or if it <laughs> had a crash landing somewhere into a tree. I'd, I'd love to uh, talk about follow-up. That's a great idea. We will do so. Thank you, David. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we've talked many times uh, when we want a little break from the COVID uh, one little break from what's going on here on Earth. Uh, we take off into space with Paul Delaney, uh, astronomy and space exploration expert and professor at York University. Uh, some fascinating stuff going on, and Paul Delaney is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. hope you're doing well. Doing very well indeed, Scott. So we chatted a, a couple of weeks ago on after we watched the first SpaceX rocket uh, take, uh, I guess it was four astronauts, up into the uh, International Space Station. Everything worked, tickety-boo. Uh, the craft, uh, the, the people got, the astronauts got up there, and then the craft came back down, uh, and, uh, well, not the docking part, but the rocket part came back down and landed on a platform. As you and I shake our heads looking at this, it's like something right out of the Twilight Zone. So the other day we're watching another one of these happen except this is a giant experimental rocket and i'm watching with my son and i remember saying watch this thing land and then it started to land and then all of a sudden boom it's like whoops he just looked at me i don't think that's supposed to happen can you explain to us uh, paul what actually did take place here well you're quite right it, it wasn't quite uh, the textbook story that uh, spacex wanted <clears throat> but remember and you said it it's an experimental vehicle so unlike the uh, Falcon 9 and the Dragon capsules and so on, what we saw yesterday was the SN8, and it's basically Starship uh, prototype. And the number eight tells you that uh, we're working our way through this sequence. The other seven didn't survive either, uh, but in varying uh, ways of disaster, shall we say. So what the plan is, is this very big rocket, and you can see that it is substantially different in design. It's meant to be entirely reusable and really is out of the twilight zone. It's back to the 1950s. Everything that goes up comes back. That's the plan. And so this flight yesterday was the first time it had actually left the ground and gone more than a couple of hundred meters up. Three rocket engines, their Raptor engines, took the vehicle to a height of uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 15,000 meters. I actually haven't seen the, the final altitude. And that was the plan, to take it up and then do some mid-air maneuvering and then bring it back down. The important part of the mission, though, literally was <laughs> getting it up there and maneuvering in the air. They wanted it to land properly. Obviously, something happened there. This is brand new. The Raptor engines haven't seen a lot of flight time. The SN8 itself has not seen flight time above uh, literally a couple of hundred meters. So, in a way, it wasn't so much. It wasn't too much of a surprise. SpaceX's developmental strategy very often is. Let's go ahead and try this out on on something real. 
before we actually have done all of the background checks. And if it blows up, we'll just build another one. As long as nobody's on board, as long as there's no satellites, they're taking that as an acceptable uh, R&D process. So yesterday, yeah, they should have landed it, but they didn't. It won't phase them in the slightest, I don't think. Well, it appeared that they still felt this was all a success. Well, as I said, the main part was to see whether the thing would lift off mm-hmm. <laughs> and get to you know uh, fifteen thousand meters or they're about fifteen kilometers up, give or take, uh, and uh, then do literally mid-air maneuvering. This vehicle is designed to come back through the atmosphere in sort of like a belly flop type fashion, very similar to the way the space shuttle entered the atmosphere. Most of the capsules that you and I watch come back uh, to minimize their cross-section as they fly through the atmosphere and therefore keep all of the heat uh, focused on the heat shield. This vehicle, the, the, the Starship, is supposed to literally belly flop into the atmosphere spread out uh, the, uh, the, the energy of re-entry. But because it has such a larger cross-sectional area, it slows down much faster because of aerodynamic drag. So this is a very different design. All of that apparently worked fine yesterday. I mean, it didn't re-enter, but they maneuvered it in the atmosphere into this sort of belly flop orientation. So I, my bet is that if they had sort of 10 items they wanted to test out yesterday, they probably got eight or nine of them, and they just didn't nail the landing. It just seems very bizarre watching a, a rocket or a, something shaped like a rocket or is what we know traditionally to be a rocket maneuver the way you say. It just yeah. looks so bizarre. Well, that, that's exactly right. But the, when you think back over SpaceX's history, bizarre is sort of part of their middle name. Yeah. <laughs> they've, they've not done things uh, the way NASA has done them. They've not done things the way the European Space Agency and you can't argue with success. I mean, they've launched the Falcon 9, for example, a hundred times, and they've lost two. Uh, that's, that's a pretty good track record. You know, they're now taking uh, people to the International Space Station, and they're planning to take space tourists into orbit next year with their Dragon. So it, it's hard to be critical of their R&D process, given the fact that it has generated results. So as you said, this looked uh, picture perfect until the last few seconds of the landing here when it was actually coming back down uh, in a vertical position on the launch pad. Do we know what happened? The, uh, the answer is no. Uh, what has sort of crept out onto the net so far is some type of fuel delivery problem to the Raptor engine uh, nearing nearing the landing point. So presumably it must have lost power. And, of course, if you don't have the necessary thrust to oppose gravity, gravity is going to win and pull the rocket vehicle down a little faster. Uh, and that appears to have been what has happened. Was it the Raptor engine's fault? Was it the uh, propellant delivery? I mean, as I said, this is a brand-new architecture. I'm sure it is built upon the success of the Falcon 9. But the Raptor is a much more powerful engine and uh, obviously, they didn't quite have it all right. In a way, though, better for it to, to, to blow up now when the stakes are low, so to speak, because now they'll go in and they will tear apart that fuel delivery system to find out exactly what happened, what went wrong, and that problem now will never reappear. So as, as silly as it sounds, it, it probably is a good thing that you identify the problems early in an R&D process. So it looks like at this point it just came in too fast too, uh, and, and too hard and just simply didn't stop in time. 
that's that's what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, as I said, yeah, if the Raptor engine stalls out or at least doesn't have enough thrust, gravity is very determined in this regard, as mm. I tell my students. You know, it's going to pull you down, it's going to pull you down, and if you don't oppose it properly, gravity wins. Uh, so that is what happened. So tell us more about this craft. Obviously, you said it's bigger. What is this going to be? What are they testing? What will this eventually be used for? The, the payload is the big winner here. Uh, you know, going up to the International Space Station, you can carry four, five, six astronauts. You can carry a little bit of um, uh, science and fuel, but you can't get much above low Earth orbit. The, the Falcon Heavy is supposed to take a similar size payload to the moon. But again, you're talking about just a handful of people. What uh, SpaceX wants to do is to be able to take dozens, if not perhaps a hundred people, all the way to the moon and beyond. So the payload delivery of the, the Starship is significantly higher than what we are able to do with the, the Falcon 9 at the moment. That's why these Raptor engines have been developed. They're much more powerful than the Merlin uh, engines that are uh, firing and, and propelling the uh, the Falcon itself. So it's payload delivery, much larger payloads, which means, of course, you know, you'll be able to take... Um, larger satellites to geostationary orbit or more substantial payloads into low Earth orbit if that's what you want to do. But to be able to deliver more mass further is the aim of the Starship. And it's completely reusable. Unlike the current Falcon 9 setup where we throw away the second stage, we bring the first stage back, but we throw away the second stage, everything on the Starship comes back. So how far along are they with this craft's development? When will we eventually see it fly, if we do? Uh, well, if you listen to Elon, he, he, he figures that its first real flight might be next year. Um, as much as I love SpaceX and Elon Musk, his timelines are always highly optimistic, shall we say. Uh, so I think we're probably still a couple of years out before you see a starship with significant payload make its way into Earth orbit or beyond low Earth orbit. But when we say two years, that's a blink of an eye in the space industry. I mean, it, it took nine years from the last shuttle flight in 2011 before the U.S., and it was through SpaceX, was able to fly astronauts back into Earth orbit. So if, if SpaceX is able to take the Starship into orbit in the next two years, that's really very, very quick development. But I think that's the sort of timeline we're talking about. A couple of years, Elon Musk wants to see flights to the moon and flights uh, to Mars in and around the middle of this decade. I, I really do think that's too optimistic. Uh, but a couple of years, I would bet, before we see Starship in orbit. Uh, as you said, in this sort of research, uh, you're going to blow a few of these things up, and, and thankfully no one uh, gets hurt or got hurt in any of, of these situations. Uh, that being said, what is the reaction when, oh, man, we just we just blew up another one? Because this must must be a tremendous cost when this happens. Well, it is, but, um, you know, SpaceX has managed to, uh, you know, turn a profit, if you will, over the last, you know, five years with the Falcon 9. I mean, you know, they've landed, I think it's now 70 of their first stages. So they've, they've redesigned the equations as far as the cost into low Earth orbit is concerned. So I think they have great confidence that their R&D processes work. Yes, it might be a little more costly because you do blow a few more things up rather than work it all out on paper. But if that means that they can turn it all around in a shorter time frame and get paying customers 
on board within a very short period of time, as in three, four, five years, then they must have done the cost-benefit analysis and said it's worth doing. But nonetheless, if I was the engineer who you know, was spending every waking hour looking at the SNA and mm. hoping that it was all going to go perfectly, they would have shed a few tears on the land yesterday. Um, we, we've certainly seen a tremendous amount of progress in a short period of time. And we remember when this was happening all the time. It seemed the shuttle flights were going up. We didn't even know when they were going up half the time. There were so many of them. And then there was a giant lull in all of this. And now it seems that, uh, for lack of a better word, we're back into this, into this program again. How healthy is this program? And, and are we progressing? Because we do seem to be seeing a lot of progress, at least, you know, from a, from a layman's standpoint. I, I think we are seeing a lot of progress, and part of that uh, progress is being in uh, the, the incentive for it is you know the Artemis project going back to the moon, uh, and you know maybe that's a little bit of an old-fashioned space race with the Chinese, uh, but nonetheless there is now a, a very clear direction for NASA to be able to engage their expertise, which is considerable, along with the private uh, sector, and that's primarily SpaceX, but not exclusively SpaceX to be able to return people to the moon. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing this rapid escalation of activity in low-Earth orbit. The cost-effectiveness, the cost per kilogram to get to low-Earth orbit has never been cheaper than it is at the moment. There's a group called Electron, which is launching out of New Zealand, and they're taking up payloads just about once a month as well. They're a really unsung crowd, uh, not nearly as uh, powerful a vehicle as the Falcon 9, but for people who've just got light payloads, they are delivering to Earth orbit. So there are many, many organizations out there who are reaping the benefit of this renewed interest in the space environment. And, uh, you know, China and the U.S. are now, as I say, gently positioning themselves to fly back to the moon. So there is a lot of effort, a lot of interest, and it translates into a lot of jobs. And, you know, the economy needs these types of high-tech incentives. So I, I think it's good news on almost every front. Uh, it seems that forever we've been talking about this global pandemic and COVID-19. Many are asking what the world's going to be like once we come out of this. What we have seen, one of the great things, is how the world has worked together, especially when it has come to a vaccine and the approval process and, and the speed in which all of this is done once these scientists start working together. Are we going to see something like that, or will we see something like that in the space programs post-COVID-19, or is is it just such a competitive business that you're, you're not going to see too many breaking down of silos? Well, competition, of course, is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you know, Blue Origin, Electron, uh, SpaceX, they're all vying for commercial uh, contracts to get us into low Earth orbit. Uh, so there, there certainly is going to remain that type of, of uh, competitive edge. But looking beyond low Earth orbit, as I said, going back to the moon, going to Mars, to be able to do the larger projects like the International Space Station, it really does require international cooperation. And in large measure, we've seen the, the, the spirit of cooperation uh, over the last 20 years with, with particular respect to the International Space Station. I'd like to see that go a lot further. The Artemis Accords, for example, being able to set up a framework where all nations could fly to the moon together. Uh, NASA is building a consortium that is part of the Artemis project in contrast to the Apollo program and, and the space race of the 60s. The big missing 
combo, if you will, though, is China and the U.S. They are still very much uh, at loggerhead, shall we say, when it comes to the space environment. Will that change uh, under the new regime with Biden? I, I have no idea. But that is where there needs to be a lot more effort to be able to reconcile differences with China so that the space environment can, in fact, be uh, pushed forward with the Europeans, with the Chinese, with the Russians, with the Americans, uh, not to mention us, the Canadians. I mean, you know, the, the opportunity to pool the resources and make the space environment a lot more accessible for everybody The the opportunity is there for the taking, and I I really do hope that uh, the nations of this world take that opportunity. Obviously, this has once again captured uh, the attention of of citizens around the world. What's next? What can we look forward to next? Well, if if all goes according to the plan, you know, the next four years we'll see people back on the moon. Uh, And that that really is a very exciting and a very motivating uh, goal. NASA is certainly pushing ahead hard on it. I don't expect Biden's administration to change that emphasis, but who knows? After January 20th, we'll have to see. But uh, if NASA has their way, you're going to start seeing crewed flights to the moon in very short order within the next couple of years. Uh, the building of the, the uh, lunar gateway is still on tap. Uh, you know, 2024, 2025, it's a, it's a, a goal that NASA is looking forward to. So you will see human activity from the NASA space side uh, of the industry, but you are also going to see a lot more space tourism. Virgin Galactic, for example, is due to fly into low Earth orbit next week. Uh, and if Elon Musk has his way, space tourists will be flying next year. So there's a lot of, a lot of activity, and I, for one, am looking forward to the show. Now, and we should explain the reason we're going back to the moon is it's a gateway to Mars and, and eventually discovering more of that. That's why we're heading back to the moon, correct? Well, primarily, I mean, if you ask me, we should never have left it 50 years ago, but that's a mm. whole other conversation. Uh, but yes, you know, the moon is a, a staging point, And it's not just so much that, um, you know, we're going to the moon. It's developing the technology that gets us to the moon developing the technology that allows us to survive on the moon. If, if something goes wrong, the moon is three days away. You want to be confident in your technologies, both getting there and staying there, before you commit your resources to going to Mars. That's NASA's argument. And it's not a bad argument either. Figure out what you need to do to get to the moon and to stay on the moon. And if you can do that, you've probably figured out almost everything you need to worry about in going to Mars and getting to Mars knowing full well that to Mars and back is a three-year trip, to the moon and back is a week. Wow. Always fascinating. Paul Delaney is with us, astronomy and space exploration expert professor at York University. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yes, you and do. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Normally at about this time, uh, we're going live to the premier of uh, Ontario, Doug Ford, for his daily news conference. Uh, those have slowly been waning over the last week or so for various reasons. And then it has been announced today that uh, that's it. Uh, they're uh, ceasing the one o'clock uh, news conferences at this point. Uh, Ledge is not sitting as well at this point. To talk more about all of this and what's going on, let's bring in uh, Travis Danraj, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He is with us now. Travis, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. I'm doing great. How about you? 
I'm doing good. So uh, what has it been like covering these things every single day for the last 39 weeks? Uh, and are you surprised that uh, they've stopped these? It hasn't been 39 weeks. I've lost track of time. I mean, <laughs> yes, it, it is. <laughs> yeah, the premier has been doing this since March, and you know he uh, indicated that he was going to continue doing these, uh, you know, for the you know indefinite amount of time for the foreseeable future. Um, and then we got news today that you know they are going to be stopping these one o'clock. Uh, press conferences. They didn't really give a reason, but they said that the premier would hold news conferences. Uh, you know, if there was something very significant to update the public on. But essentially, uh, as you said, the house rose yesterday, uh, two days ago actually, uh, until February, and so it doesn't seem like we're going to be seeing uh, Premier Ford as consistently as we have been over the past several months. Are we at the stage with this pandemic that that's a good idea? Do we still need to hear from them every day? Well, I mean, there are there are various opinions on that, right? I mean, I, I think the optics of having the premier out in front uh, every day for the first few months of the pandemic, the, his office thought that that was something that uh, uh, was a good thing to, to to show leadership, to show that he was, you know, on top of uh, all of the developments. Now, um, you know, I don't know what the calculation is, but uh, I, I do know that last week we saw that uh, under general report, which was. I guess it was two weeks ago, actually. Um, and it was pretty scathing in terms of uh, the government's handling of COVID-19. And one of the things that, you know, the report noted is that in other provinces, we've seen the chief medical officer of health kind of in the forefront as opposed to the premier. Mm. And they may be changing media strategy at this point and, and, and saying to themselves, okay, well, you know, what is the benefit for us moving forward here to have the premier facing fire from reporters uh, and, and tough questions uh, on a consistent basis every single day. Do, do you think having, do you think this has something to do with the ledge not sitting that at times with the, with their Christmas break, or is that just coincidence? Yeah, yeah I think, listen, I think there's a human factor here. I, I mean, you know, Premier Ford has been going uh, yeah. full speed ahead and he's been, they must be fried. Yeah. He, he probably wants a little bit of a, a, a break uh, or at least, you know, the schedule to be toned down a little bit uh, in terms of these, these, these briefings. Uh, and right now they're, they're also focused on the distribution of the vaccine and getting that plan in place. So we just got a statement actually from the premier's office because, yes, that's how things are going to go now. And they're saying that um, uh, basically starting on Tuesday, December 15th, the first doses of the COVID uh, vaccine are going to be administered at University Health Network and at the Ottawa Hospital. Uh, so that is some new news uh, that they have just released and that General Hillier is going to be taking questions today at 4.30, but not the Premier. So anything more, because we had heard that these are all going to a certain distribution point within the provinces and then people will have to come there in order to get the vaccination because of obviously the logistics and handling this very low temperature uh, vaccine. But that will keep it out of the nursing homes or long term care, will it not for at least temporarily? Yeah. So, I mean, there are some logistical challenges here. And the premier was actually touring the facility uh, within University Health Network the other day, one of these deep cold uh, storage facilities that the vaccine 
Pfizer vaccine, at least, has to be stored at minus 70 or below. To give you an idea, that's kind of the average temperature of Mars. So, you know, the equipment that is needed uh, to store the vaccines are limited. There are 21 facilities, 21 hospitals in the province uh, that, that do have that capability but the, the government is not releasing information on uh, to where the vaccine is being stored. But then they, you're right. They have to uh, be able to then transfer it to the points where people will be vaccinated. Now, sometimes that is the hospital. But other times, you know, as we get more and more vaccines, that will be long-term care homes. That will be, you know, family clinics and possibly even pharmacies and things like that. So they're, they're working on the technology to be able to maintain that cold supply chain. Uh, throughout because that's going to be key so what is the premier doing today and uh what's on his agenda as far as meeting or or chats with other premiers or the prime minister so uh, he is going to be attending the first minister's meeting or is is there right now uh there's supposed to be a photo op with the premier this morning that got canceled but I, i think that they will be doing something this afternoon uh, the other thing that he is being briefed on, probably, uh, he, uh, unless he has been already, are these new modeling numbers that are coming out at 3 o'clock from the health table, which is going to be very interesting to see where we are. You know, the last set of numbers that we got about a month ago or so uh, weren't good. Um, the projections were, were, you know, pretty pretty doom and gloom in terms of what we could see uh, up to 6,000 cases a day. Uh, obviously, we did. We have not hit that point yet, but, you know, today we did hit another record. I think we're over 1,900 cases in Ontario again today. So uh, he's probably paying attention to that. And like I said, you know, they're, they're focused right now on getting this vaccine out uh, because that's going to be a game changer, as the Premier has said previously. Uh, anything more on the projection numbers coming out this afternoon, and then we'll let you go. I know you got to run here. Uh, we had Dr. David Fisman on earlier today from the UFT. He said he had seen the modeling, but he certainly wasn't going to let the cat out of the bag with us. Uh, yeah. Have you heard anything? And, and so we are going to get the media is getting embargoed uh, documents later on this afternoon. Basically, you know, everything has to be under wraps until the three o'clock news conference starts. That is not in my email box yet. So I haven't even had a chance to, to look at the numbers. I mean, everyone's crossing their fingers and hoping that, you know, we're starting to see a flattening of the curve here or that the numbers hopefully will be actually headed downward. However, you know, the, the, the big challenge for the government over the past couple of months has been, and the past couple of weeks, in fact, has been to try to get these case numbers down as much as possible in the hot zones because we are headed toward Christmas uh, and, and the holidays, and they don't want to see a spike when it comes to the case numbers uh, over, uh, you know, right now, and then we get to another spike at, at Christmas because as much as you tell people, don't see your families. There are some people that are going to do that, and we could potentially be in a situation where we're, you know, uh, dealing with limited hospital capacity and things like that. So it's going to be interesting to see how this goes this afternoon, but I, I don't have a crystal ball just yet to, to give you any idea to, to what we're going to be seeing with that modeling data. Travis Danraj has been with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Travis waiting for uh, the latest projection numbers from Ontario to come down at uh, 3 o'clock this afternoon. Travis, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.